Gabriel, you made me cry in two services. <laughs> Proud of you, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thanks for your example. You know, if you haven't checked out or participated, if you don't know anything about House of Refuge, please stop by and talk to them in the lobby uh, between the services here. So this morning we're in Romans chapter 11, and this has the Apostle Paul continuing his message specifically about the nation of Israel. And you have to admit, they are a very unique people group. I mean, just in terms of their survivability, think about it, for the last 4,000 years, how many different nations have come and gone, and yet the nation of Israel is still with us today, despite the fact that many throughout their history have, have tried to wipe them off of the planet. They're extraordinarily unique in that they can trace their lineage back to one man. Almost 4,000 years, back to one man, Abraham. Their contributions to society in proportion to their size is enormous. There's roughly 15, 16 million people who consider themselves Jew first. But you think about their contributions in terms of religion and economics and the intellectual contributions, second to none. Roughly half live in Israel and a little less than half live here in the United States. And what's interesting is that to this day, feelings toward them not only worldwide, but in our own country, are somewhat mixed. So what's interesting about our text today is that Paul asks the question, what is the response, what is the attitude from the Christian community to the Hebrew? And this is a natural question in many ways because this is a continuation of Paul's discussion when he began by saying, of all people groups on the planet, God chose the Israelites to be his chosen people. Of all people, he gave them special privileges, spiritual privileges, spiritual blessing. It was only to them that the promises and the covenants came. It was only to them that the great patriarchs came. It was only to them that the sacred text was given. Additionally, there was a forthcoming Messiah prophesied who would come from the nation. They had all of these amazing spiritual blessings, and yet, Paul says, the majority have turned their backs on God. And if you look at their history, this is the case. God would perform supernatural acts in their midst in an attempt to win them over freeing them from enslavement, conquering battles. And it wouldn't take long before the people would turn their back on God and start pursuing man-made idols. This is their history. And then when the Messiah comes, that's Jesus, they rejected him as well. And so Paul has been asking the question, well, has God given up on them? Has he just rejected them because they've rejected him time and time again? 
is, is God done offering salvation to the Jew? Essentially, that's what he's asking. Well, in chapter 11, he answers again with the resounding no, and he uses himself as a beginning example. Verse one, he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Well, by no means. And again, he's gonna use himself as an example. He says, for I myself, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul says, the fact that, that I came to faith in Christ tells you he hasn't rejected everybody. And this is quite a statement because remember who Paul was. Formerly, he was Saul. He was on the fast track to becoming some of the most elite religious leaders of his day. And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus. He sought to kill Christians, and then he becomes one. And then Jesus gives him a new mission in life, and it is to reach the Gentile or the non-Jew. And woven in this text, you'll find one of the secrets to God's master plan for bringing his people back to himself. You finish this chapter, you're like, if you understand God's history of reaching out to his people, you're like, I can't believe how desperate God is in the sense that how many different ways can he appeal to his people? Come back, come back. Back in the day, he would send the prophets and they killed the prophets. He sends the Messiah, they reject the Messiah. God is not done. Chapter 11 is gonna make that crystal clear. Additionally, Paul says, I'm not the only one. You may think that I'm the only one, but I'm not. And he picks up this theme from the Old Testament and he tells the story of Elijah. And Elijah was this prophet who fought this amazing battle on behalf of God and won. And then this woman comes to power. Her name is Jezebel. And she says, hey, Elijah, I want you dead. And all of a sudden, this great warrior, this man of God, retreats and he falls back and he's afraid and he finds himself depressed. Paul writes this, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. It's like Elijah has some things to say about Israel and he's gonna appeal to God. Here's what he says. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. I'm the only one and they're trying to kill me. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which is a prominent pagan god. I think perhaps Paul can identify with Elijah a little bit right now, you know? From city to city, Paul has been driven out by his own <laughs> as he tries to bring them the message of Jesus. Paul could be thinking, am I the only one? And Paul's like, no, no, no. In many of these cities, as I open up our sacred text and share about a forthcoming Messiah pointing the Israelites to Jesus, some of them are responding. But in large part, the reality is, even to this day, Israel has rejected God's offer of salvation. There are many Jewish believers who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, but at large, the nation has not. Why is that? Why, why do so many of God's chosen people continue to live in unbelief? Well, Paul describes in verse five and six, 
the pattern that they continue to be in is that they think they can, they can please God by doing all the right things. In other words, it's a form of righteousness that is based upon their own actions apart from the righteousness that God provided in Jesus. Verse five. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Oftentimes, Paul contradicts, or Paul, um, he contrasts grace with works. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? So what is grace? It's God's unmerited, unearned favor. And yet he says they continue in this pattern where they believe that if they maintain all of the rules, then God will smile and throw open the gates of heaven. And what they missed was the grace of God being supplied through Jesus. It's the idea that you can't be good enough, so Jesus was good enough on your behalf. And this reliance upon their own what would end up being self-righteousness actually drove them further away from God. Verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Well, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. He elaborates on this concept in chapter nine. As it is written, now he's gonna quote from the Old Testament, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is very strong language, and it's also very, very sobering. And I don't think this warning is just for the nation of Israel. I think it's for anyone who continues to rebel and reject the truth of God's word. For example, you can be a church attendee and come faithfully and put yourself under solid biblical teaching and you could be exposed to the truth and never take it up into your life. You can sit under a lot of really good biblical preaching and never really make the connection in terms of real world change and application. That's why James says, don't merely be a hearer of the word, but what? Be a doer. One who is merely a hearer has to ask himself or herself this question. After a while, is it being revealed that there's a real spiritual apathy or perhaps even a spiritual deadness in my life? Paul says, this is actually the case for his Jewish brothers. They've missed it. What then, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? Some did. Some didn't. Back to Paul's question. Has God abandoned his people? Of course not. There are some who have embraced Jesus. Grace through the cross. What Paul does next is expand his argument to say two things. Because the question should be asked, why is God orchestrating it this way? Here's how the argument expands. Number one, Israel's rejection will not be forever. It will not be permanent. There will come a day when the nation will turn back toward God. Secondly, because of the nation of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, that has actually opened up the door for God to do something that nobody saw coming. Certainly, the Hebrew never saw God 
offering salvation to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. That's what he says next. Verse 12, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, was this all done for no reason? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Notice carefully one of the reasons why salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is amazing. If you look at the history of God attempting to reach his people, he's done it in so many different ways. They've constantly rejected it. Now there's something new. He says, here's how I'm gonna try to reach my people. The offer of salvation is not just to the Jew, it's to the Gentile. And when the Jew sees the Gentile coming to faith in the Hebrew God, and watch this now, and experiencing the blessings of God on his or her life, that's gonna cause the Jew to go, hold up. Whoa, 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 wait a second now. What's going on? Because remember, in the Jewish mind, to be blessed was to have the favor of God. And so when they see God blessing the Gentile, they begin to think, wait a minute. How is it that our God has a relationship like this with you? And it is meant to provoke them to jealousy so that they might actually be one. So your mind is being expanded right now and your heart in terms of Gentile believer like me, you were saved in part for this purpose. <laughs> so that you would live your life in such a way, you would be this magnet that would draw all people to the Savior, but perhaps primarily the Jew. You know, in Romans chapter one, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you know why? Because it has the power to save people. And then you know what he adds? To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. This was Paul's ministry, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, so I magnify my ministry, I wanna enlarge it, I wanna make it known, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So this is great, Paul says, I'll be candid with you. Gentiles, I want you to come to faith, but I'm gonna tell you, I have something else in mind. I want you to come to faith so that my Jewish brothers and sisters can see the favor of God on your life and be provoked to their own jealousy and turn toward him. This is why it's so important to understand. You as an individual believer and the community of believers at large, the way we live our lives is so important. It goes way beyond what you know to God's larger purposes, the promises he made to his people to never give up on them, to never leave them, to constantly pursue them, even though they, never, they rarely keep up their end of the bargain, they're like, I'm still gonna reach you, but I'm gonna do it in a way you never saw coming. Gentile. I'm gonna use you to reach my people. God has not abandoned his people. Additionally, Paul says, there will be a day when the entire nation turns. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. Their restoration is literally referred to as death to life. 
What does that mean? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that you all might have life. And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm already alive. He, he's talking about a quality of life, an abundant life. We have a lot of people who are existing on the planet. Not too many are living an abundant life. What does that mean? It's well-ordered. <laughs> you have meaning. You have purpose. You're not living life in such a way as to create drama. Drama will always come at you. This is what it means to, an abundant life is that satisfaction and security and rest in knowing that you are loved by God unconditionally and your eternal security, it's, it's solved. Your greatest problem in life has been cured. You're a sinner separated from God. You understand that, you begin to flourish on this planet. That's the abundant life. That's what, you, that's what I came to give you. So when the Gentile experiences that abundant life, it becomes a magnet to draw people in. Paul says, specifically, God worked it this way to reach his people. This restoration is so certain, Paul uses a couple of illustrations to show you. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy and pure and acceptable, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Okay, so in the mind of a first century Jewish reader, completely understand what he's talking about here. This concept of first fruits, it's, it's more powerful than you know, more sacrificial than you know. You have first fruits, that's from the first crop of the season, then you have the second and third. Well, there was no guarantee that the second and third crops or fruits were going to be as plentiful or abundant as your first fruit. So when you offer to God as a sacrifice, a real sacrifice, what you have at the first of the season, you're saying, God, I'm trusting that you will provide in the following season. So here you go. You're not saying, God, I'm just gonna hold this back and wait, and if I have enough at the end of the seasons, then I'll give to you. It's first fruits. It's like, I'm gonna give it to you right up front. That's trust. You take the portion of dough. You take a lump and you offer it in sacrifice. It stands to reason that if that lump is acceptable because it's taken from the entire portion, then the entire portion is acceptable. Abraham would be considered the root of the Jews because it all started with him. When God chose to draw a people group to himself, he started with one man, Abraham. So I began by saying, the nation of Israel can trace its roots back to one man, 4, 000, almost 4,000 years back to one individual. What other people group can do that? Why do you think that is? Read your Bible. It'll explain. <laughs> if the root is the most natural thing of the plant, all of the branches then will reflect what the root draws up, okay? The hard root of Christianity is actually Jewish. Gentiles are the ones who have been invited into the plant, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, why would you be arrogant? <laughs> why would you be arrogant to the branches? Because the branches are there naturally. You're the one that's unnatural, Gentile. You're the one that was grafted in. Do you know what a cocktail tree is? Have you ever seen these things? They're super cool. 
A cocktail tree, you can take a citrus tree and you can graft other forms of citrus on. If you do it right, it's very difficult, but you can do it right. You can graft other branches onto this thing. You have to be very careful with it. It takes a lot of time. You gotta know what you're doing. But you can have it on, one, on a citrus tree that, that produces all kinds of citrus. It's a cocktail tree. It's an amazing thing. Well, you have the natural branches, then you have the branches that are grafted in. You see what he's saying? He said the hard root of Christianity is Jewish. It started with Abraham. All of the natural branches, the Hebrew. You Gentile, you're the wild one. <laughs> you're the exception. God has brought you in to what he had going for a long time. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. What is faith? Trust, really another way of saying belief. So do not become proud, but fear. I want you to note that faith in God is what allows you to be grafted in to the spiritual tree, so to speak. Therefore, there's no reason for you to be proud. Furthermore, both Jews and Gentiles will be treated the exact same way. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, don't think he's gonna spare you. Note then, there's two attributes of God that, that, that are um, being put forth here, and a lot of people don't like one of them, okay? One is kindness. Everybody's down with the kindness of God, but then all of a sudden you read the next one is, hey, by the way, God is kind, but he's also severe. Severe. In what way? Well, God has a... a, a, a God doesn't like it when people hurt each other, when pain is inflicted on humanity. Uh, this is, in a word, what the Bible describes as sin. And because God is holy and just, he can't turn a blind eye to all that stuff, man. He has to deal with it. And the problem is we all fall under that because we, we're, we all do wrong. And, and when we do wrong, here's what we want. God, we get it. You, you, you must, in your severity, you must deal with sin. But thank God you're kind. <laughs> thank God you're kind. When other people do wrong, we cry out what? God, bring them justice. Make it swift, severe, and certain. Then when we do wrong, what do we say? Mercy. <laughs> Mercy. Do you see the beautiful balance here? God is both. He's severe, but remember this, he's also kind. Severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. What does that mean? Well, he's about to tell you, continue in belief. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Let me summarize it by quoting C.S. Lewis. He said this, in a sense, the converted Jew is the most normal human being in the world. Everyone else, from one point of view, is a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. 
Paul says, so then, if you are a Jewish believer, why would you be proud and arrogant? Oh, you, you just don't get it. The fact that you were grafted in from what was not natural to become part of what was natural, that is all God's doing and blessing. No room for pride, ego, or arrogance. Now, lest you doubt that all of Israel will return to faith, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, because here's what's happening. There's a partial hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. A partial hardening until this certain time comes. We'll talk about that in a second. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, reaching back into the Old Testament. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant, my promise with them, when I take away their sins. Okay, so there's this partial hardening that has occurred, um, this, this blindness, if you will. But until the time of the, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Okay, so what is that talking about, right? That's the big question. Well, there's three primary thoughts here. Number one, this could refer to a very specific number of Gentiles, and when that number is reached, then the nation will come to faith. Number two, uh, some believe that it refers to a revival amongst the Gentiles, wherein the nation of Israel clearly sees the favor of God upon the non-Jew and is provoked to jealousy and returns. Third idea is that it, it refers to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And when this happens, every nation, tribe, and tongue has been exposed to the gospel, then the time of Israel's turning back to God will occur. Whatever the case, what we can note is this. It clearly refers to the grace of God being given to the non-Jew. So then, in light of all this, how am I, as a Gentile believer, to look at the Hebrews? Verse 28, as regard the gospels, they are enemies for your sake. It's like God, in a sense, they're enemies of God but for your blessing and benefit, because when they rejected God's offer of salvation, that opened up the door for you. Consider them that way. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God made specific promises to them. You're gonna be my people, and I'm sticking with you. In the fullness of time, there's gonna be a turning back, but I'm gonna be faithful to you. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, right? They can't be taken back. For just as you, Gentile, were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy themselves. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It is all a work of God's mercy, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's all a matter of God saying, I am going to withhold what you all deserve. And here it comes. You're all gonna receive my grace. Unmerited favor. That's why Paul begins by saying, my Jewish brothers missed it. And today they miss it because they still think that righteousness, favor with God, can be earned. 
It is not about your morality. <laughs> you can't be good enough. Jesus was good on your behalf. And God graciously extends to you that offer. Accept Jesus' goodness on your behalf. You don't have to work for it. Now, isn't it amazing? I mean, within the sovereign plan of God, the ways in which he works things in order to reach his people, that he would open up salvation to a Gentile like me in order to provoke his chosen people to respond to him. That is a very high calling. By the way, that is one of the reasons why salvation has come to you. You were saved in part for that reason. And not just to the Jew, but as I said earlier, individually and corporately as a Christian community, we should live our lives so that the favor of God is upon us. How do you do that? Well, you're obedient. Obedience always equals blessing. You say, I just wanna be blessed by God, but I don't wanna do the work of obedience. It ain't gonna happen. God always blesses the greatest likeness to what? His son, period. Now, as Paul contemplates all of this, God's relationship with his people and the, the, the depths that he will go through to reach them, and the brilliance of expanding salvation to the non-Jew so that they can see the mercy of God. What a, God is amazing. In fact, this thought causes Paul to break out into some extreme theological praise. That's how he ends. Watch this, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches. How wise is God? How much knowledge does God have? How unsearchable are his judgments? Inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Hey, God, I've got some suggestions for you. You might want to think about... Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This is the author, sustainer of all life, of the universe and all it contains. Who gives him a gift? And he's like, wow, man, I owe you for this. For from him, okay, we gotta go slow here. For from God and through God. For from him, he is the author of it all. And through him, he is the sustainer of it all. And to him, it's all for his good pleasure are all things. <sighs> to him be the glory forever. You know what the word amen be, means? Let it be. So be it. Amen. Strange time we live in, right? I mean like today, with all that's happening in the world. So I feel compelled to say this. It seems obvious that anti-Semitism is on the rise, which from 
a Gentile believer's perspective is totally illogical. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense that any of it would come from within the Christian community. It doesn't make any sense. At the same time, we must be careful taking Israel's side on every single issue. Why? Because there is no human government or authority that gets it right and perfect every time. As I read through the Old Testament, it's very clear that God's promise of the blessings of land are still intact. I don't know how it's all gonna play out in the immediate future, but I do know how it's gonna play out in the distant future. Because Paul says it's irrevocable. God isn't going to make a promise and not fulfill it. In the meantime, we should absolutely rejoice in our amazing blessings. And we should live in such a way that we would provoke all people to jealousy. That they would say, I really want what those Christians have. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Where are you at on this one? Oh, without a doubt, it wouldn't take you more than two seconds to think of those people that are in your orbit, they are in your life, and they're observing. And isn't that the question? Are you provoking them to jealousy? Do they look at you and they say, well, no, 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 no. we're not talking about living a pain-free life. Jesus had a tremendous amount of pain in his life. But even in the pain, those on the outside can look at us and say, wow, what is, who is, who, somebody seems to be walking with you through these really dark valleys, right? And that's different. And you respond different, you react different because the Spirit of God is in you. And for the Gentile believers, nothing but straight up gratitude and appreciation. So Father, that's what I want to express from my own heart. I'm thankful that within your sovereign plan, you chose to grant me access in unnatural part of what you began as something very natural with the nation of Israel. Father, we pray that your good work and your goodwill would be done in the hearts and minds of your entire family, both Jew and Gentile. And as we experience your favor on our lives, as we live in obedience, trusting in you, people would be drawn. In the world we live in, it, there's, just, there's a desperate need to be transferred from death to life. And you give us the dignity of participating with you in that. What a privilege. May we be faithful. All for your glory, we pray. In the name of the one who makes it possible, his name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen.